And welcome back to Axioms of Liberty podcast, where we dive deep into the most philosophical thinkers of our era to help you build a better foundation to understand your world. And today's read is Chapter 17 from the Voluntarist Handbook, titled Privatize the Roads by Walter Block. If the government demanded the sacrifice of 50,000 citizens each year, an outraged public would revolt. If a religious sect planned to emulate 500,000 in the next decade, it would be toppled. If a Mason-type cult murdered 790 people to celebrate Memorial Day, the press would demand the greatest manhunt in this country's history. If we learned of a disease that killed 2,077 children under the age of 5 each year, or a nursing home that allowed 7,346 elderly people to die each year, no stone would be left unturned to combat this enemy. If private enterprise were responsible for this butchery, a cataclysmic rejection would soon ensue. Congressmen would appoint investigative panels, the Justice Department would seek out antitrust violations, corporate executives would be jailed, and there would be growing cries for nationalization. In fact, the government is indeed responsible for a real-life slaughter of these exact proportions. The toll taken on our nation's roadways, whether at the local, state, regional, or even national level, it is the government that builds, runs, manages, administers, repairs, and plans the road network. While many blame alcohol and excessive speeds as cause of highway accidents, they ignore the more fundamental reason of government ownership and control. Ignoring this is like blaming a snafu in a restaurant on the fact that a poorly maintained oven went out or that the waiter fell on a greasy floor with a loaded tray. Of course, the proximate causes of customer dissatisfaction are uncooked meat or food in their laps, yet how can these factors be blamed by themselves while the role of the restaurant's management is ignored? It is the restaurant manager's job to ensure that the ovens are performance satisfactory and that the floors are properly maintained. If he fails, the blame rests on his shoulders and not the ovens or the floors. We hold responsible for the murder, the finger on the trigger, not the bullet. If unsafe conditions prevail in private multi-story parking lot or in a shopping mall, the entrepreneur in question is held accountable. Why then is there apathy to the continuing atrocity of government roads? Why is there no public outcry? Probably because most people do not see any alternative to government ownership, just as no one opposes or protests a volcano, which is believed to be beyond the control of man. There are few who oppose governmental roadway control, but it is my contention that to virtually eliminate highway deaths, we need to put ownership and control of the roads into private hands and let the entire service be guided by the free market. The notion of a fully private market in roads, streets, and highways is likely to be rejected out of hand because people feel that government road management is inevitable. Governments have always owned roads, so any other system is unfathomable. 
but there is nothing unique about transportation. The economic principles we accept as a matter of course in practically every other arena of human experience apply here, too. As always, the advantage enjoyed by the market is the automatic reward and penalty system imposed by profits and losses. When customers are pleased, they continue patronizing these merchants who have served them well. Businesses that succeed in satisfying customers earn a profit, while entrepreneurs who fail to satisfy them are soon driven to bankruptcy. The market process governs the production of the bulk of our consumer goods and capital equipment. This same process that brings us fountain pens, frisbees, and fish sticks can also bring us roads. Why would a company or individual want to build a road or buy an already existing one? For the same reason as in any other business, to earn a profit. The necessary funds would be raised in a similar manner. By floating an issuance of stock, by borrowing, or from past savings of the owner. The risks would be the same, attracting customers and prospering or failing to do so and going bankrupt. Just as private enterprise rarely gives burgers away for free, use of road space would require payment. A road enterprise would face virtually all of the same problems shared by other businesses, attracting a labor force, subcontracting, keeping customers satisfied, meeting the price of competitors, innovating, borrowing money, expanding, etc. The road entrepreneur would have to try to contain congestion, reduce traffic accidents, and plan and design new facilities in coordination with already existing highways, as well in conjunction with the plans of others for new expansion. He would also take over the jobs the government does now, like sometimes filling potholes, installing road signs and guardrails, maintaining lane markings, repairing traffic signals, and so on, for the myriad of road furniture that keeps traffic moving. Under the present system, a road manager has nothing to lose if an accident happens and several people are killed on a government turnpike. A civil servant draws his annual salary regardless of the accident toll piled up on his domain. But if he were a private owner and he had to compete with other road owners, Sovereign consumers who care about safety would not patronize his road, and thus the owner would lose money and go bankrupt. A common objection to private roads is the specter of having to halt every few feet and toss a coin into a toll box. This simply would not occur in the market. Imagine a commercial golf course operating on a similar procedure forcing the golfers to wait in line at every hole or demanding payment every time they took a swipe at the ball. Such an enterprise would very rapidly lose customers and go broke. Private roads would create economies of scale, where it would pay entrepreneurs to buy the toll collection rights from the millions of holders in order to rationalize the system into one in which fewer toll gates blocked the roads. One scenario would follow the shopping center model. A single owner or builder would buy a section of territory and build roads and houses, just as many shopping center builders maintain control over parking lots, malls, and other common areas.
the entrepreneur would continue the operation of the common areas such as the roads and sidewalks, etc. Tolls for residents, guests, and deliveries might be pegged at low levels or be entirely lacking as in modern shopping centers. Consider a road on which traffic must continuously be moving. If it's owned by one person or company who either built it or bought the rights of passage from previous owners, it would be foolish for him to install dozens of toll gates per mile. There now exist inexpensive electronic devices which can register the car or truck passing by any fixed point on the road as the vehicle passes the checkpoint. An electrical impulse can be transmitted to a computer that can produce one monthly bill for all roads use and even mail it out automatically. Road payments can be facilitated in as unobtrusive a manner as utility bills are today. It is impossible to predict the exact shape of an industry that does not exist. I am in no position to set up the blueprint for a future private market in transport. I cannot tell you how many road owners there will be, what kind of rules the roads will have, how they will set them up, how much it will cost per mile, etc. I can say that a competitive market process would lead highway entrepreneurs to seek newer and better ways of providing services to their customers. Now we come back to the question of safety. Government road managers are doing a terrible job. Consider what transpires when safety is questioned in other forms of transportation to see a corollary. When an airline experiences an accident, passengers think twice before flying that airline and typically lose customers. Airlines with excellent safety records have discovered that the public is aware of safety and make choices based upon it. An exploding pinto wouldn't stay on a private road long nor would reckless drivers and potholes. I don't know of all the details of how a future free market road system might work, but I do know that there has to be a better way, and it is the free market. And that ends the article of Privatize the Roads. What do you guys think? Privatizing the roads, would that be a viable option? Think about, think about it just for a second. The businesses within a said area are incentivized to make sure the roads to their businesses are in working order to customer satisfaction in order to make sure the customers can arrive safely to their place of business. Now, if all the businesses within a said area had a joint ownership of the roads themselves well some of you guys might say hey hey but wait like they already pay for this other stuff like they pay for the government to do these things like they don't have the money to, to own the roads outright okay let's future scenario government doesn't exist so therefore the individual businesses themselves have more money because there's no taxation within said system so outright from the onset of this scenario that we're utopian visioning is that Every business already has more money than they do currently because government taxation doesn't exist. So they are they have more capital to deploy. So individuals wanting to capitalize on creating the environment that 
facilitates the greatest number of customers reaching the businesses would inevitably want to do this. I would assume you could just assume praxeologically if a, a entrepreneur owns a business, his highest incentive is to make sure customers can reach his business so that he can do business with him. And with that being said, the ownership of the roads is just right down that that methodology of thinking that they would actually own the roads and take care of them. Now, they are actually more highly incentivized to take care of the roads to make sure that there's probably security going around and making sure that there are no other individuals that would make the customers feel unsafe within the certain area because it is their responsibility to do so. Because remember, back back to the beginning, you're saying that people don't have the money for these things, but there's no government in this scenario, so therefore they have more money than they normally do. So they would have the extra capital to expend on these things that government necessarily imposes upon everybody, is that we have this overarching government currently, and this government taxes everybody to pay for these services, but the services that we receive for said tax is subpar at best. Like, there's no arguing that the government does a horrible job at keeping the roads safe, keeping the roads in working order, and the latter of all of that mess that considers the whatever the public good that the government is offering. But if a privatized entity actually did this, it would actually be better. Think about think about the private roadways of uh, toll roads. When's the last time you were on a toll road that was messed up? I don't think I've ever been on a toll road that was just totally jacked. Under construction for years on end. Like... That doesn't happen because it's a private road and it's owned by somebody who's trying to make money. And they realize that never ending years long construction is a burden to the people he's trying to serve. Uh, think private parking. Private parking structures have numerous surveillance video systems installed within them to help ensure the safety of all individuals. Most parking structures have some form of security within them for the same exact reason. The parking structure is a privately owned for-profit endeavor and it owns all of the infrastructure that goes along with it and therefore necessitates the creation of a safer environment because it is profit-driven. But if you go to, say, a public parking lot, you would probably see lots of lights that are not even working. There would be lots of destroyed road within that parking lot. There would probably be lots of homeless people and other individuals that are probably less than savory to be around. I don't know, just just spitballing here the ideas of what would it look like if business owners actually took the ownership and the responsibility of the surrounding neighborhood areas that facilitate the traffic to the businesses themselves 
I think there could possibly be a better way for these individuals to do that. I don't know. What do you guys think? Let me know. That was chapter 17. Now we're going to move on to chapter 18. The Utilitarian Case for Voluntarism by Danny Duncamp. No position but voluntarism is defensible from a utilitarian perspective. Even if I convince you of this, you might respond that you are not a utilitarian, so this does not convince you of voluntarism. However, you needn't be a utilitarian to be persuaded by utilitarian arguments. Utilitarianism is the proposition that you should do whatever maximizes utility or the fulfillment of human values. You may not think about that maximally fulfilling human values is always the right thing to do, but you do probably care about human values at least a little, so it's still worth taking utilitarian analysis into account. Or perhaps you are a utilitarian. That works too. Voluntarism is the proposition that interactions in which both parties consent, trade games, etc. are universally preferable to interactions in which one party coerces the other, violence or theft. I could plausibly establish the utilitarian justification for voluntarism simply by referring to the billions lifted out of poverty through voluntary trade over the past couple of centuries. Since 1820, GDP per capita worldwide has increased 15-fold. The percentage of people living in extreme poverty, less than $1.90 per day, inflation adjusted, has fallen from over 90% to 10%. The average person has access to a variety of food, entertainment, and technology that even kings under previous economic systems couldn't dream of. The utilitarian benefits of voluntary trade are so gargantuan that no honest utilitarian could entertain any alternative. However, this argument doesn't make clear why we can attribute the triumphs of capitalism to voluntarism. More importantly, it misses the deeper philosophical connection between voluntarism and utilitarianism. To resolve these issues, let us begin from the perspective of a utilitarian. The problem with utilitarian analysis is that some values are mutually exclusive. If I eat an apple, you can't eat it too. My value for apple eating is fulfilled, yours is not. We therefore must determine who values it more. Sometimes this may be intuitively obvious. We probably agree that if I am dying of hunger, while you aren't even sure if you'd finish the apple, then I value it more than you. In other situations, it isn't so obvious. If neither of us is starving, and both of us like apples, then who values it more? It's hard to say. Why is it so obvious in the extreme case? Perhaps because we know I would be willing to sacrifice more if the apple were on a high branch and I would be more willing to climb up and get it. If the apple were for sale, I would be willing to pay more. This understanding, drawn from the extreme case, gives us a way of estimating who values something more when it, it isn't so obvious. Namely, 
If I would be willing to pay more for something in effort for money or anything else, then I value it more. Fortunately, this system is largely self-arranging. If one of us currently possesses the apple and the other values it more, the latter can buy it from the former. Not only does this mean the buyer is better off, the seller must be too. If the buyer did not value the apple more than the money, he would not have bought it. If the seller did not value the money more than the apple, he would not have sold it. It is only largely self-arranging because while people are generally incentivized to act in accordance with it, there is an exception. Coercion. I might not want to buy the apple from you if I can simply take it from you by force. My values are still fulfilled. I must have valued the apple more than the effort of taking it from you, but yours are not. You must have valued the apple more than the nothing you got in return, or you would have just given it to me. We are back at the problem of determining whose values are more important. In fact, it's worse than that. If I try to take something from you, you will resist, imposing costs on both of us in the form of property damage and bodily harm. In addition to the cost of security you may incur to prevent future acts of coercion, it's not just that voluntary acts tend to raise the total utility and coercive acts have no such tendency. Coercive acts actually tend to decrease total utility. Thus, voluntarism gives us a method of determining who gets what in a way that maximizes total utility. If someone appropriates some unowned piece of property from nature, leave him be. He has just increased his utility. If he trades that property with someone else, leave them be. They both have just increased their utility. If, however, he steals or damages the property of someone else, stop him. He has just reduced total utility. If we apply these principles of private ownership and voluntary exchange consistently, we must apply them to capital goods, which are goods used to produce other goods, tools, machines, companies, etc. If these goods could be seized at any moment, then you would have little reason to produce them. Conversely, if you can reliably maintain ownership of capital goods, you have a profit incentive to produce them and sell their output to the world. This is how capitalism, the private ownership of goods, has achieved the unprecedented living standards we discussed at the beginning. This isn't to say that the world we live in now operates entirely on a voluntary basis. Theft, fraud, murder, and assault still happen regularly. Taxation, war, victimless crime laws, and an endless list of other government actions all violate people's consent every day. Our reasoning tells us that each of these actions should be expected to reduce the total fulfillment of human values at least to the extent that you care about human values. You should attempt to prevent these coercive actions. In other words, at least to the extent that you are utilitarian, you should be a voluntarist. And that's the end of the article. Utilitarian. I think utilitarianism is a very subjective 
idealization of the whole situation because like okay take back to the go back to the example that he gave you and i both want an apple how do we decide who gets the apple and utilitarianism we the one who gets the apple should be the one who values it most but we know as deducement thinkers that value is a subjective measure even in the scenario that he gave us, we can understand that the starving man values the apple more than the man who just had a meal. So in a utilitarian argument, the starving man should be the one more deserving of the apple than the man who just ate. But that only works in that subjective ideal of well, one guy's starving, the other guy just ate, so give the starving man the apple. But it doesn't work in a scenario in which both of us are starving, or both of us just ate, because how do we decide who gets the apple then? There's a subjective subjectivity, excuse me, that is applied there, that is foregone in the sense of those two individuals, both starving, how, how are we going to decide then who, who, who deserves the apple more? The only way it would be, the only way it actually makes sense to decide who gets the apple is who of the two is willing to give up the apple. Now, what if neither wish to give up the apple and both want it? Now we have a fight on our hands of some degree. Now can, is there a peaceful way to settle this dispute of who gets the apple? Absolutely. One can go to negotiations and say, hey, I will give you this, whatever it may be. You know, it could be anything. It could be barter of some sort. You know, I can give you, I can give you these Pokemon cards for the apple if you let me have it. The other could say, I could give you gold for the apple if you let me have it. You know, communication is the existence of humans wishing to work together. Like, if we didn't wish to cooperate with one another outside of just barbarously beating each other's heads in to get what we wanted from one another, communication wouldn't exist. We wouldn't have these methodologies for which cooperation occurs and I think that in that scenario eventually if it didn't resort to violence which is a form of coercion in which one individual beats the other until he gets the apple now one person had their utilitarian ideals fulfilled while the other had theirs limited if in a voluntarist ideal world we would find a way of creating the ideal scenario in which individuals actually participated in a system in which they both got something that they valued more. So if you really truly are utilitarian, you would want the maximum utility of both individuals and not a subjective individual of whatever individual 
needs the item more. It's a very good thing, thought process to think about. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed today's little short read. And we will be back next week, or maybe later on this week. I think I have another day this week. I could probably record another episode. Anyway, I'll figure it out. If not, check your feeds. I'll be in your feed. Until then, guys. Thanks.